From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Holocaust survivor Ossie Slodek remembers early signs that something heinous was afoot in his hometown. As a kid, I had friends, but it didn't last very long because I started suffering from kids who had hatred in their hearts. Eventually, his family fled to a ramshackle mountain cabin to escape the Nazis. There was no running water. So in the winter time, my mom always told me to get outside, take off my shirt, and she picked up snow, and she washed my back with snow. In an encore episode of our show, Slotik shares his family's survival story and his journey to Israel, Venezuela, and the USA, where his folk music career flourished. <laughs> You're used to monthly bills, monthly subscriptions, monthly fees, and you know paying for things over time makes the total cost more manageable. It's one reason most CPR donors give monthly, and it's also why many members are able to grow their support incrementally and make small adjustments that fit their budgets. If now is a good time to increase your monthly contribution by a few dollars, email membership at CPR.org. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, a Jewish boy's experience during the Holocaust, his family's mountainous escape from the Nazis. First, though, an update on a World War II story we told you about Monday. A vestige from the attack on Pearl Harbor has arrived in Colorado, its new permanent home. The USS Arizona was destroyed when the Japanese bombed Hawaii in 1941. To this day, it is the final resting place for 32 sailors from Colorado. And now the Freedom Memorial in Aurora is the final resting place for a beam from the battleship. A mostly silent ceremony marked its arrival. Nikki Stratton helped get the relic to Colorado. Her granddad survived the attack. His dying wish was that no one would ever forget Pearl Harbor, especially no one would ever forget USS Arizona. Um, And seeing the people out here, I think he would just be smiling because this is his dying wish fulfilled. The artifact was flown to Denver and loaded into the back of a black SUV. I think he would have gotten probably the best kick out of the motorcade that we had coming from DIA. Uh, He absolutely loved whenever he had a motorcade and thought it was the best thing possible. Nikki Stratton led a short, somber procession. It took six service members to carry the heavy crate to the heart of the memorial, where it was opened. It's definitely a pretty large piece. It's much larger than I thought it was going to be. Air Force Master Sergeant Carlin Leslie came from nearby Buckley Space Force Base to witness the arrival. It's incredible to think of the rust and the, the way the metal looks, the tarnishness of it. But that's obviously survived for this many years, and it's survived for a reason, because people have taken care of it to honor it and to make sure that that doesn't ever get forgotten. Leslie brought his daughters, four-year-old Lacey and two-year-old Riley. They clung to him, and the eldest had a question. So she goes, what's the piece of metal? I said, well, it's just, it's from a big ship. I'm not afraid to tell her about history. History is important, obviously, in this day and age. So having her understand what that means, that there's individuals that are still on the USS Arizona, and we plan to go look at pictures of the ship when we get into the car, right? and kind of explain it more of what that means and what that looks like. Master Sergeant Leslie expounded, for me, on the idea that the Arizona, a piece of which is now in Colorado, remains a watery grave. 
But this is a way to recover those individuals, to bring them back to the state of Colorado. It's the most dignified transfer that they may ever get in their entire lives. Um, and especially for their families to have that kind of closure. Yeah, it's not a body. Yeah, it's not a piece of a relic of them, but it's a relic of what they served for and what they represented for our American freedom. And there are plans to build an exhibit hall at the Colorado Freedom Memorial, which will house this section of the Arizona. Until then, there will be occasional events so the public can see it. We have photos and more about how Colorado landed this relic at CPR.org slash Colorado Matters. If there was someone to use the term Renaissance man about... It would be 88-year-old Oscar Slotic of Denver, Aussie for short. Musical ambassador fits him too, so does passionate educator. But Slotic is first and foremost a folk performer. Aussie, it's nice to see you again. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. You were born in 1935 in Preshov, Czechoslovakia, and your parents had a store. Would you describe the shelves, what was on them? What was on them? Well, they, they carried a variety of uh, merchandise, mostly leather goods and musical instruments and records and toys. A, a little bit of a general store, I suppose. It, yeah, but it was an upscale store, mm-hmm. even though the city was a small city. But they bought all of their merchandise from Germany, mostly. Germany and Italy, because they were the best producers of leather goods before the war. Before the war, yeah. right. I think of Germany and Italy as being part of the Axis powers, of course. Were you good at making friends as a kid? As a kid, I had friends, but it didn't last very long. Because uh, when the regime changed in Slovakia to a fascist government, I started uh, suffering from kids who... Uh, had hatred in their hearts, young kids. No doubt taught that by their parents. Yeah, they probably heard their parents talking about uh, what was happening. There was anti-Semitism, and uh, the government uh, was talking about sending the Jews to Germany to work in factories. And I used to get beat up after school. Kids a little older than I was, they used to call me names like, you dirty little Jew, go to Palestine, or we don't want you here anymore, and stuff like that. Were these kids that you used to be friends with? Yeah, some of them, yes. That must have been really painful to see that kind of change in their hearts. Extremely painful. But one thing I learned from the Holocaust, I learned a lot about human beings. Mm -hmm. And that was the start, where some of my friends all of a sudden turned against me. For no reason, okay? And since then, I have studied people. I'm very, very good at being able to tell who is who, so to speak. Mm, You read character. Yes, I do. By second grade, you were forced to wear the yellow Star of David, denoting that you were Jewish. So that was a visible symbol And I imagine that contributed to the bullying you experienced. Oh, yes, it did. Absolutely, yes. There's a tense scene in the book, an encounter with a customer at your family's store. Will you describe what happened when a German soldier 
came in? First of all, just the fact that a German soldier came in was something unique because there were no German military in Slovakia at that time because the government, our government, the Slovak government, made a deal with Nazi Germany that they didn't want German military to come to the country, Mm. but they will obey by all the rules regarding the Jewish community. They'll sort of self-administer that. Yes. Uh-huh. So so they save themselves the, the trouble of having a whole bunch of German soldiers coming to Slovakia. And so to see one walk through the door would have been notable and probably scary. I didn't pay attention. I was on the floor paying with the toys. I like to go in there, and whenever my parents mentioned that they just get a supply of new toys... I always begged to go there and play with them, you know? Uh-huh. Try I, them I, out. I try them out, that's it. <laughs> How generous of you, Ozzy. Yeah. <laughs> so I was sitting on the floor. I always sat on the floor and played with, with the toys. So he came in, and my mom was behind the counter, but she was very unhappy about that uh, encounter because she didn't know where this German soldier came from. So what happened after a few minutes, uh, it was clear that he was coming to buy merchandise. He was on his way from Poland to Germany on a leave from the army. So what do you think he told your mother? He At first, uh, he, he worked around and he was looking at the merchandise. And then when he was ready to pay and uh, move on, uh, he told my mother... Who is this little boy? Is this your little boy, little son? And she said, yes. So he said to my mother, you better figure out how to hide your son when there is trouble here, when they are going to start picking up the Jewish people, because children are among the first ones to be sent to concentration camps. And uh, unfortunately, many of them are dying. I saw that in Poland. Wow, he was very frank with your mother. Very frank, and I I call it, in my dictionary, he was my first angel. I call these people angels who gave us help to think forward and to do things that would ultimately save us so that we were never picked up and sent to a concentration camp. Well, life in Prashov became so dangerous that your parents arranged to have you smuggled into Hungary to live with extended family. You were still so young at that point and understandably resisted a separation from your parents, the life you knew. As an only child, I wonder if you ever wished for siblings to have experienced all of this with. Because I'm an only child, and there are times I wish I could have had shared experiences with siblings. I I wished uh, not only then, but later on as well. And the fact is that if there would have been two of us, I would have had a problem surviving the Holocaust. Because when I was picked up by a smuggler later on, and smuggled to Hungary, he wouldn't have taken two kids. Hmm. So it would have been a problem. And frankly, most of the families 
from my knowledge, who had uh, multiple children, uh, had a really terrible time because they did not all come back from the concentration camps. Once you are with extended family in Hungary, life is relatively normal for a while. Jews had more rights there than in your hometown. And I want to mention, Ossie, that food comes up a lot in your book. So would you take us to a time when comfort food was actually comforting? Do you remember maybe what you were eating and who you were with? Well, I, I liked uh, good food. And, and the reason was that my dear mother, Irene, she was a wonderful cook. I've been told all along my, through my whole life that I was spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> By her cooking. <laughs> By her cooking, <laughs> yes. And so that I'm very finicky when it comes to food. I wonder if you ha- found it hard then to eat well in Hungary away from your mother. No, Hungary was good too because her, her older sister that I stayed with, she was a wonderful cook as well. And What foods do you remember? Well, a lot of pasta and uh, Hungarian foods, you know, like uh, paprikash and, you know, things of that sort. And again, uh, I was lucky that my aunt was a good cook, so I was a good eater. <laughs> there is a chilling scene in the book where you attend a parade, and this is in Hungary. Will you describe what you saw? It was a very scary day for me because I was at school, third grade Hungarian school. And uh, in the morning before I left, on the radio, there was an announcement that today was going to be a big day for us, for Hungary, because the German military is uh, coming into our country. Mm. You know. And it was uh, March 19, 1944, one day after my birthday. And so being uh, very curious as a kid, and not only a kid, but a kid who was already cautious and uh, familiar with what was going on. Aware of what it meant to have Germans arrive. Right. So I told the teacher, I don't feel well, I have to get out of here. So she says to me, go home and uh, come back tomorrow. So I went straight to that plaza where they used to have parades. And I was just sitting on a sidewalk and looking between people's you know, adults' legs. And I was watching, the, the first of all, the Hungarian officers on their Lipitzen horses. And all of a sudden, cars, German Mercedes cars, And I was so scared at that moment because I've never seen before, actually, a German military of that sort. And when I saw the commanders, the officers, stepping out of those beautiful long Mercedes cars, it gave me chill. That was the beginning of a real fearful uh, life that I lived. Your parents survived this period because they were connected with non-Jews in the community. Friends would help them hide in dugouts beneath their floors during Nazi roundups. They acquired fake IDs and baptismal certificates to pass as non-Jews themselves. 
Indeed, you were eventually smuggled back to them, Hungary having become no safer. Do you think about what might have happened if you had stayed with your extended family? I wouldn't be here today talking to you. Simple as that. They were picked up. My aunt, uncle, and two cousins. And from there, then they shipped them to Auschwitz. Did your aunt die in the Holocaust? No, very fortunately. All four of them returned alive, which was a a, a big celebration in, in their city after the war, Mm. Uh, very lucky people, because it was very rare for a whole family to survive. survive That's right. Yes. Eventually, your parents and yourself, you have no choice but to flee the city in Slovakia and hide in the wilderness in the Tatra Mountains, hence the title of your memoir, Escape to the Tatras. This mountain range is a natural boundary between Slovakia and Poland. And I'll note this was during one of the coldest winters on record. You were in the wild until the end of the war. Where did you sleep at night? First, we were in in a cabin, in a mountain cabin, but it's not like we have in Colorado, you know. I'm, I'm not picturing <laughs> a fireplace and a and a hot tub. <laughs> nothing. Uh-huh. There was nothing yeah. there except a potbelly stove that the the shepherds used in summertime when they brought their sheep up to the mountains to graze there. So this was not a cabin that was meant for winter dwelling. No, it was a you know a wooden a log cabin. And that's where we survived until uh, December 25 of 1944. Christmas. Interesting. Yes. Okay. That's why I, don't, I couldn't forget this date. Yeah. And that day, at the behest of some partisans that were hiding in the mountains, who came down and warned us that the Nazi troops were coming up to the mountains. So that, that he says, disperse. And, you know, and make sure that they don't find you here in this cabin. Where would you go? So we uh, left the cabin, and in about another 40, 50 minutes walk, we found a, an opening in a big uh, rock. It ended up being a, a cave. There was a cave. We settled in the cave. And you were actually with another family at that point that yes. had escaped from Poland. Yes, yes. And uh, what do you remember of that cave? That cave was a very small, uh, narrow cave, but uh, we could sit on the on the ground and just uh, hope that they they won't find us. The thing that I, I'm always happy to share with anybody, I used to carry a hatchet with me. Uh, that was my personal weapon. When we were still in the city hiding, one day we walked by an like an ace store, you know. Uh, Hard, like a hardware, hardware store. store. Okay. And I told my dad, Daddy, I have to have a weapon. So he says, what are you talking about? I say, I want a weapon. Okay. So I, we walked into an ace, you know, kind of a hardware store, and I found a hatchet there. He bought it for me, and I always carried it with me. Mm. And I did some real interesting things with that hatchet because when I lived in the cabin, 
there was this sto little stove, you know, and it needed to be kept going. The fire needed to be kept going. So I would be going out around and climb on a tree, and if I saw a dry branch, I would cut it off mm -hmm. with a hatchet and take it down, cut it into small pieces. They put me in charge of keeping the fire going. Well, oh, it must have been an important feeling as a kid. Oh, to I be felt able to terrific, keep, you yeah. know. And so what I, had, I did in this case here, my mind told me suddenly, cut down a couple of branches, pine trees we had there, and I was the last one to slide in into the cave. Oh, did you cover and, the entrance? And I covered the entrance <gasps> with two large branches. Do you remember being cold a lot? Oh, all the time. Uh -huh. You walked into this interview with the most beautiful jacket, full-length coat, really. And it makes me wonder what your relationship is with cold today. The most difficult time of the year always is... December. Mm. My wife always reminds me because I get a little kind of uh, a little serious, you know. This Melancholy, kind of maybe. Melancholy, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because everything comes back to me. Around this time of year. Yeah. Did you smell? Did I what? Did you smell? Did I smell? I'm just thinking about how hard it would be for me to feel clean staying in a mountain cabin. Well, we didn't have any a lot of clothes with us, obviously. So mm -hmm. we, we kind of stayed in our sweaters and whatever we came up with, okay? Yeah. Uh, there was no water. Right. So in the winter time, my mom always told me to get outside and take off my shirt, and she picked up snow, okay? And she washed my back with snow. She would rub my back oh. with snow. Oh, it must have been so cold. Cold. Oh, but I mean, I think about just what it is to take a cold shower, let alone be kind of rubbed with snow. And the rest of my body, I did myself with snow. That's how we kept ourselves clean. The other, uh, other uh, thing that we had to do, we had lice in our hair. Mm. So she would always go through my hair and f find the lice. And I would go through her hair and through my father's hair also. And that's how we managed to stay healthy, okay? It's such inhumanity that you were subjected to. Are you angry telling that story? No, not at all. Because I feel angry when you tell the story. Well, uh, yeah, I should be angry. You know, I was uh, interviewed not long ago by NBC. Yeah. And the interviewer asked me, have you ever hated anybody or the, the, the Nazis? Did you hate them? Mm -hmm. And I was sitting across from her and I said, I can't hate. Because it's you not saw, me. Because you saw what hate could do, maybe? Do you well, think? Pro probably. Uh-huh. Probably. And it's not who you are, you said. No, no. I can't hate. I remember you telling me in a previous interview, Ossie, that your family found a way to celebrate Hanukkah in the mountains. And it makes me wonder about your faith now versus then. My faith never changed. Never changed. I'm still Jewish. I maintain my Judaism on my level, the way I am comfortable with it. And that's how I, I've been uh, all along, all the years. 
you know, having interviewed Holocaust survivors over the years, um, a, a fair number of them lost faith, maybe not all of it, but some of it. Certainly, the experience changed their understanding of, of God, but also of their fellow humans. Why do you think you kept your faith then? Because I, I think it would be very easy to say, if the God I pray to can allow this to happen, you know? Well, uh, here is what, what I came up with, okay? I grew up in an Orthodox family, <laughs> so obviously I believed in God, and I prayed to God, okay? But I created my own God in the mountains. What do you mean? I couldn't pray to a God that allowed my family to be taken away and killed. So I created my own God, and I prayed to my own God. That's how I was able to, to survive without hating, without, uh, without crying, without anger, because I always had a God. And is that the God, then, that you pray to now? Yeah. Uh-huh. Did you name this God? No name. No, it was just an no idea. Name. It was an embodiment. I mean, God is God. But, but again, this is what kept me going. Mm-hmm. Okay? I, I couldn't pray to that God that allowed thousands of my fellow Jews being picked up in, in the city, in our city, you know, were shipped to concentration camps, where most of them died. Holocaust survivor Oscar Ossie Slodek of Denver. His memoir is Escape to the Tatras, A Boy, a War, and a Life Interrupted. The two of us sat in a brightly lit sanctuary at Temple Sinai in January, which she used to lead. I was the executive director, but most of the members always think that I was the cantor here. Oh, because you sang so much. Because I had my accordion, and before Friday night service started, Shabbat, I started with nigunim, you know, with uh, Hebrew uh, Shabbat songs, you know. Sing me a few notes, a few uh, bars. O Davinu Chai, O Davinu Chai, O Davinu, O Davinu, O Davinu Chai, Hey, O Davinu Chai, O Davinu Chai, O Davinu, O Davinu, O Davinu Chai. I'm Israel, I'm Israel, I'm Israel, hi. I'm Israel, I'm Israel, I'm Israel, hi. Oh, it reminds me of Shabbat's as a kid, that, that sound of coming together, that sound of gathering, that something is about to start, you know? Yes. But and people thought that you were the cantor, yeah, the singer. Yeah, that's what they remembered <laughs> more, because, you know, there was a congregation. They didn't see me in my office, right? <laughs> But they saw me every time they came for Shabbat. The executive director with an accordion. Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, this is the perfect transition to your life in music, because you were born into a musical family. Your father was a violinist, conductor, and composer. And I'd love to hear a song that he wrote. This is the Slovak hit. I'm going to have you say the title for me and maybe say what it means. Hey, Anička Biela Ruža. Hey, Anna, my white rose. Mm. It's a love song, okay? Mm. 
Anička biela róża, nie plaści za mladego szuchajczka. Hej, Anička mila moja, kecia szuchaj nie wezmę, będziesz moja. A kupim ci tu najkrajszą sukieniczku, a ty mi dasz za to sladką hubiczku. Hej, Anička biela róża, nie plaści za szuchajka, zostań moja. What are your earliest musical memories, Ossie? My earliest musical memories are listening to my father, his violin. You know, I was very young then. And uh, I owe it to my father that I ended up with, become a, a musical person. Mm -hmm. uh, so the earliest things were in, in Hungary. When I used to go to uh, various organizations there with a partner, a young girl, a Jewish girl, and we, we learned how to tap dance and sing and dance. And that's really where I really started. As a performer, As a I performer, guess. yeah. Yes. Ta you, do, you, do you still tap? Do you still have tap shoes at least? No, I don't. <laughs> no. <laughs> Where did you learn stage presence? Uh, well, we were on stage. I mean, you know, <laughs> when we were performing, we were on stage. You know, we had routines. I learned Hungarian songs, and we sang Hungarian. She was a Hungarian, the girl that I danced with. Mm -hmm. But uh, when I was in Kosha, that was the name of the city where I lived with my family. In Hungary. In Hungary, yes. They had an, a national Hungarian theater there, and it was a very well-known theater. Mm. And they hired me to perform in a musical. They did uh, operettas there, oh. real, real good theater, real classy theater. Mm. The director interviewed me. They needed a boy who could do tap dancing and who could sing. So... I went up and he listened to me and so on. So that was like in October, November in uh, 44. So I was so excited. He said, we need somebody like you in our next musical. And guess what? After the Nazis came in, they told me they hired somebody else mm. who was better than I was. And you know why they did it? Of course. Because, yeah. because, because I was you Jewish. Were Jewish. Right. That was a big disappointment to me at that age, you know. After the war, your family moved to Israel. There you joined the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, and you served in an army entertainment troupe, playing accordion, writing songs, and you had real success composing the hymn of the Israeli paratroopers, which they apparently still use today. What do you feel when you hear that piece? Uh, 
I, it's just another piece I wrote. Huh? <laughs> I wrote There's I wrote, so many, Ryan. I wrote and, a whole bunch of songs. You know? And the, the, the pieces share what? Hanatzanrim? Hatzanchanim. Hatzanchanim. Yes. Hatzanchan in Hebrew is a paratrooper. Is the paratrooper. Yeah. Right. No, I, I, I mean it. I mean, you You're know, shrugging as I ask you about this. I love you it. know, I started composing before I went to the army. Yeah. And some of, couple of my songs were already recorded before I went to the army, you know, by a record company. And I wrote a whole bunch of songs. So this is just, you know, for me, it's just one of the songs <laughs> that I wrote. <laughs> What was it like to be in this new home in Israel? I mean, new not only for you and your family, but a new fledgling nation. I, you, I think you arrived, didn't you arrive there on the first anniversary yeah, of, Israel. of Israel's creation? Yes, yes. I'm thinking like you should be singing Hatikva. Hatikva. The... We sang Hatikva when we were on the ship, uh, the immigrant ship that took us from Romania to Israel, uh, arrived to Israel the, the evening before uh, Yom Atzmaut, which was uh, uh, Independence Day. Mm-hmm. By the way, Hatikva is the national anthem of Israel. Yeah, yeah. Na- national anthem. So what we did, we didn't sleep all night on the ship. You were excited? Oh, they were dancing and singing, and uh, and we sang all kind of uh, songs, you know, Israeli songs that I learned in my youth group in Preshov before uh, we went to Israel. A festive environment on that boat. It was a wonderful time, yeah, time that I never forget, you know. And how did it feel to be in Israel in those early days? It felt, uh, to me, it was like paradise, okay? You know, going through all the experiences in, in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, I could hardly wait to get there. I was 14 years old. I uh, was determined to go to Israel because the fact was that after we came back from the mountains and back to Preshov, the war basically came to an end. There was still a lot of anti-Semitism. I mean, it lingers today in those places, frankly. And it was not a, a pleasant environment. And what came on top of that, in 1948, communists uh, took mm-hmm. over Slovakia, Czechoslovakia. See, these two nations joined again yes. after the war. You know. And land was seized and lives were upended. And they lost their business yeah. th- the second time. You lived in Venezuela for a couple of years and eventually moved to the United States, to Los Angeles, as the folk movement is ramping up. You played alongside acts including the Kingston Trio, the Limeliners. I understand these are some of your best memories. What's a backstage story you'd like to tell from that time, Aussie? Oh, I want you, dirt. You, you, dirt. you wouldn't want to hear that. <laughs> Oh, my. The Travelers Three, that was a group. The Travelers Three. Yes. I was invited to Oklahoma City. There was a club there called the Budai. The what now? The Budai. The Budai. Yes. Okay. And uh, they hired me for two or three week uh, gig. Yeah. So I took it. 
I took a bus from Denver to Oklahoma City. It was in the winter. You'd moved, by the way, to Denver because that's where your wife is from. Yes, yes. So I took the bus. I really wanted to get back to entertaining, you know. I got down there, and I, of course, uh, he hired the Travelers 3 also, three guys, and, you know, we become friendly, and it was all fine. The third night that I got there, I lost my voice. Oh, goodness. Can you imagine? What a thing. Being, being uh, an o- owner of a club, and one of your performers <laughs> lost his voice the third night. Uh, of course, the Travelers 3 were fine. <laughs> but now Asi Sladek, who he brought in from Denver, you know. So what happened was he took me to a ER at a hospital there in, in Oklahoma City. And he told uh, what was going on. And he said, you know, I'm going to lose money. I hired <laughs> this guy. I have to pay him. But he's not singing, so do something. Make him better. So they gave me a big dose of penicillin. And guess what? I was allergic to it. Oh. <gasps> Oh, no. Oh, yes. What happened? What happened? A couple of days later, I started to swell. My whole body started to swell up. But my voice came back, so I (laughs) could could sing. I could entertain, okay? We actually have a recording of you at the Buddha. Oh, do you? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And now maybe we'll do something together. How about that? An Israeli horror is a national dance of Israel and they hold hands together. They dance it in a circle. They dance it as long as they have power to dance. If you know any of the songs I'm gonna sing, just be sure to join in and sing and clap, do anything you want. Alna, 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 titchabena mi ben Come and there's a hora. One, two, three, four. Oh, the boys will help me for Tina Tina. When the band is playing, my heart singing Tina Tina Tina. Zulu. What did folk music at that point? What did it mean to you? It meant a lot to me because you have to understand that when I first started to uh, act, I was the only guy who played the accordion. Everybody else had either banjos or guitars. So I was kind of an odd <laughs> oddball, you know. <laughs> but I lo- so I sang in different languages. And I, you know, among them I learned some of the American folk songs. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's how I started in this country. I'm gonna lay down my sword and shield down by the riverside. Come on, sing down by the riverside. Down by the riverside, I'm gonna lay down my sword and shield. Down by the riverside and study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. Ain't gonna study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. Ain't gonna study war no more. I mean, you really have absorbed the folk traditions of where you have lived. 
uh, European traditions, Israeli, South American. And you can sing, I believe, in eight languages, as you showed me here on Colorado Matters back in 2013. You brought your accordion today. Yes. Would you play us a little something? Sure. What do you think? I can play uh, Hebrew. I can play in uh, Czechoslovak or Hungarian or German. I mean... uh, How about um, Hungarian? Hungarian. That's fantastic. There are also German lyrics to this one. This, This song comes from the... Austro-Hungarian Empire times. It's a real old one. Debrecenbe kéne menni, pulka kakast kéne venni, meg a kocsis lyukas akas, ki esik a pulka kakas. Asi, you also had a stint as a radio host back in the day on KDEN. Unfortunately, we haven't found any tape from that time. But will you tell me about the Magic Carpet Show? Yeah, it was a wonderful opportunity that I had. I tried my best. I was not a radio person, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I'd never done that before. I think it was on Fridays. I'm not sure. You know, I was talking about folk music Mm -hmm. and I was singing in different languages. So you would sing, perform live on the show? Yeah, with the accordion, yes. Oh, I see. And would you also play records or was it all you? No, it was me. My goodness, that's a lot to pull off. Yes. Why Magic Carpet? Because I knew the name Magic Carpet, you know. Magic Carpet, it's like you travel all over the place. That's right. You were taking people magically all over the world. Yes, yes. Huh. Why do you say you weren't very good at it or that you weren't a radio man? I I didn't know how to do it, you know. Uh (laughs) But you learned. Here is your hour, so do what you want with it, you know. Wow. (laughs) Did you get nervous? No, I wasn't nervous. I, uh-huh. <laughs> I, I figured I'll, you know, I'll just sit and sing and talk a little bit. That's all. <laughs> you have dedicated much of your life to Holocaust education and advocacy, speaking in classrooms and congregations. You know, I'll note there's been an uptick in hate crimes against the Jewish community in recent years. Do you think we're headed in the right direction? You call it a direction? <laughs> well, I don't, you know, maybe it's directionless <laughs> you're getting at. Uh, well, my, my own children are concerned about what's going on. Uh, I've been in touch with uh, some friends of mine who are in the leadership positions in the, in the city, and we talk about it and mm-hmm. so on. I am very optimistic that whatever anti-Semitism we have and it may get worse, and it may not get worse, okay? I, I'm a little history here, okay? Yeah, sure. Czechoslovakia was mostly a Christian country, mm-hmm. mostly Catholic country, and the only only minority was really the Jewish people, except they call them gypsies. They were the Roma people. The Roma people, okay. yeah. So it was very simple for the government, for the fascist government, to To have a scapegoat. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And the propaganda that came from Germany did a wonderful job 
with the Slovak people. Mm. Okay? Contrast that with the United States then for me. I tell you why. We are not the only minority in this country, the Jewish people. We are just a small minority. Maybe among the smallest minorities, because if you take a look at the other than the white Christians in this country, you will realize that there are very few Jewish people living in relation to 330 million population in this country. I think I hear you hinting at the idea that there are potential allies out there in other groups that feel sidelined. Do you think that's what I, I believe that the haters, you know, the hate groups will not be able to go too far because there are other minorities who most likely would stand up and protect us in some ways. Is that your optimism speaking, Ossie? That's my optimism speaking. We've got to end on some music, Ossie. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to put you on the spot. S- will you sing us out? Sing you out. <laughs> sing something. What would you sing? Uh, I would sing, uh, how about a Spanish song that oh. I learned in, in Venezuela? Please. It's called Alma Janera. Alma Janera. Yeah. And it means? Uh, it's, it's about a country girl and the kind of a love song with a girl and a boy country, you know. Let's hear it. It makes me <clears throat> perhaps think of you and your wife. Well, <laughs> she's, not, she's not Spanish. <laughs> and she's not a country girl. She's a Denverite. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yo nasi in esta rivera de la rauca vibrador. Soy hermana de la espuma, de las garzas de las rosas. Soy hermana de la espuma, de las garzas de las rosas. Y del sol, y del sol. Amo, lloro, canto, sueño, con claveles de pasión, con claveles de pasión. Asi, thank you for being with us. Thanks for writing the book. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Eighty-eight-year-old Oscar Ossie Slotik recorded at Temple Sinai in Denver. His memoir with Corrine Joy Brown is called Escape to the Tatras, A Boy, a War, and a Life Interrupted. Very special thanks to producer Michael Hughes. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News and KRCC. La viva Diana de la brisa en el palmar Y por eso tengo el alma Como el alma primorosa Y por eso tengo